this is a thing I found on the internet. Um, it, it's a letter to technical support. Dear IT support, last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0. I noticed a distinct slowdown in the overall performance, particularly in the flower and jewelry applications, which operated flawlessly under boyfriend 5.0. In addition, husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5, Personal Attention 6.5, and then installed undesirable programs such as Football 5.0 and NBA 4.3. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs and simply crashes the system. I've tried nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What can I do? Sign Desperate. Dear Desperate, first and foremost, keep in mind, Boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while Husband 1.0 is an operating system. Try entering the command C colon I thought you loved me to download tier 6.2, which should automatically install guilt 3.0. <laughs> if that application works as designed, husband 1.0 should automatically run the applications jewelry 2.0, flowers 3.5. But remember that overuse of the above application can cause husband 1.0 to default to grumpy silence 2.5. Warning, Beer 6.1 is a very nasty program that will cause snoring loudly. Caution, whatever you do, do not install Mother-in-Law 3.2. This is not a supported application and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory and cannot learn new applications quickly. You might consider buying additional software to perform... To improve memory and performance, I personally would recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Lingerie 7.7. <laughs> Good luck from IT support. Now, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5 again. And we're going to talk about the role of the husband, we're calling it how to change your wife, but again, how does a husband change his wife? We'll see, it's by loving her in a Christ-like way. Several years ago, on Monday morning, really early, at a time that no pastor should be called unless there's been a death, but I get a call from a man who, actually I'd met at a conference, was not going to our church at that time, and he was in tears, and he, he told me how his wife was threatening to leave him, that she seemed to be attracted to somebody else, and that uh, he didn't know what to do. He hadn't slept all night. He wanted to meet with me, so I arranged to meet with him later that day. And he came in, and this is a man who was a pretty important guy in his field, but he looked, you know, he hadn't shaved, he was disheveled, his face was you know, all lines and just broken. But as he describes what was going on and, and what his wife was doing in terms of apparently abandoning the marriage. The thing that impressed me most is he says, what have I done that would cause my wife to go away from me when I thought she was such a godly woman? And, and rather than saying, I'm going to get a gun and shoot her, or I'm going to divorce her, or, I'm going to call a lawyer, his attitude was, how have I fallen short as a husband? And what can I do to win my wife back? And... Uh, 
he, he came and wanted to repent of his sin and to try to transform and change his marriage. And, and I think that's the way that a marriage is changed. That when, when, when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water, with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Uh, many people blame problems in the family and problems in marriage on feminism. And I'm, I'm sure there is some fault there. But I really think in the church, the biggest factor contributing to poor marriages is poor male leadership. Men who are selfish or men who are afraid to lead. My experience in the church is most Christian women are yearning for a man who will be a spiritual leader. Chrysostom wrote, would you love, would you have your wife obey you as the church does Christ? Then have love for her as Christ does for the church. I find many men, uh, who are experts on Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And they're very quick to bring up the subject of submission who seem to be almost completely in neglect of understanding of Ephesians 5.25 and and so lack the Christ-like love that God calls us to have. And, And so, again, back to verse 32, the mysteries of Christ and the church, that if you want to be a great husband, if you want to understand marriage, it begins with understanding Christ, understanding the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, we are always to think of marriage in terms of the doctrine of the atonement. You may think you've come to a practical conference, but this is a marriage conference that is based on theology. We talked about the Trinity in the last hour, and we're continually talking about the gospel. That as, as we meditate upon the love of Christ, as we embrace the love of Christ personally, as we realize more and more what it is to be loved by Christ, That instructs us, and not just instructs us, but it enables us, it empowers us to love our wives in the same way. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Well, what is the love of Christ like? Well, it is, in a sense, an unconditional, or I would say an unmerited love. The world has really cheapened the meaning of love. Uh, Love is so often mistaken as a a passion, an, an outward attraction sexually, a feeling you have. Uh, uh, Paul Tripp in his most recent book describes when he was very young, and it's actually, he was with Luella, whom later he was to marry, but they've been going out for a little while, and he, he, he musters up the courage to say, he's going to say, I love you. And he says, the birds were singing and the flowers were blooming. So he finally says, I love you, Luella. And she says, you don't know what love is. He said, the birds died, the flowers wilted. <laughs> but he said she was right. That we, we have these strong feelings and passions. You know, the things you can get when you're way too young to really understand love and the sacrifice that's involved. And we mistake our passions and our emotions and our longings for love. Love is not dependent upon the worthiness of the beloved. Love is a choice. God loved us not because we were beautiful and attractive and wonderful. He didn't choose us because we were the best. The best looking, nicest to us moral people. 
He loved us though we were sinners. Now, there, there are some differences, okay? I admit this. That men, obviously, if you're single, you're not trying to find the most unlovable person you can so that you can more reflect the love of Christ and say, okay, I'm going to find someone who's really hideous so that I can really be self-sacrificing. You're going to choose the best you think you can get. And hopefully you're choosing based on godliness and not mere outward charm and beauty. But once you do choose that person, you choose your love, then you love your choice. And as time goes on, you'll realize more and more that she is a sinner like you and that love is not going to be based upon her merit all the time. And and so often it's, well, I love you because you make me feel so good. You make me feel so special or you're so attractive and you do this for me. Well, those things can fade away and sometimes in a relationship, that's not happening. Couples who are having troubles, and I counsel a lot of troubled couples, He's he really couldn't say, you know, I just love my wife because she treats me so well. He, he feels like he wants to live on the corner of the roof. How can I tell him to love his wife? Well, you love your wife as Christ has loved you. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's the love of God. He demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we we seek the good of a wife, not because you think she deserves it, but out of grace. And so many men, and men are especially this way. It's kind of like, yeah, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, you know, if you treat me well, I'll treat you well. You're sweet to me, I'll be nice to you. That's a performance-based love. And Jesus talks about that. The Gentiles can do that. Unbelievers can do that. They can be nice to the people who are really nice to them. The test of love is to say, I am committed to this person. And even though right now it's hard, right now I don't feel like it. Maybe it's just selfishness. I'd rather be doing this. Nothing wrong with her, but I'd rather be doing this. Or maybe she's hurt me. But we still show love. There's an old song, Love is a Verb. Uh, DC Talk. Long time ago. Uh, one of those classics. Um, but it's true. It's a choice that God chose to show us his love. And, and when love is described in the Bible, it's described by what it does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. So that it, it's active. That it's decisional. Likewise, we as husbands are to be the initiator in love. First John 4.19 says, We love because he, that is God, first loved us. There's so many men who are kind of hanging back and waiting for their wives to take the initiative in love. And, well, I'm going to be grumpy and I'm going to be standoffish. And then if she comes in after me, then okay, I'll respond. That's the opposite of what you're supposed to do biblically. But the way God has designed your marriage and your wife is you take initiative. You stick your neck out. Even if you aren't getting along, you're the one who initiates reconciliation and then shows her love. And then the hope would be that she would respond to your initiative. It's also a love which is to be a heartfelt love. And this this can be difficult because you're not always feeling it completely, but merely a dutiful outward love that isn't from the heart doesn't really count. In in John Piper's book, Desiring God, he, he begins the book describing, I think on his 25th anniversary, where he takes his wife out for a wonderful meal and they go away to a hotel together and he's trying to make the most wonderful romantic evening he can for his wife. But if she looks up and says, oh, Johnny, thank you. And he says, well, it is my duty. Kind of wrecks everything, doesn't it? 
Um, that's not what a wife is longing for. Just, okay, I did my duty. It's Valentine's Day. I bought the requisite 12 roses, so I can tick that off of my to-do list. Now, how can you do that? Well, it's, it's a, a passion that is more based upon following and imitating the love of Christ than it is necessarily all the feelings your wife is producing in you. If, if you lack that desire, you lack that passion, you lack that longing, uh, it's good to remember the better days with your wife. It's good to remember the things about her you like. But that alone may not fuel the kind of love I'm talking about. It's really reflecting upon Christ's love to you when you were the bride and you were ugly, unworthy, unsubmissive, and he still pours out his love upon you in so many ways. That's what's going to help you to love your wife deeply from the heart. Then to love her sacrificially. Christ loved the church having given himself up for her. Christ's love for us is demonstrated on the cross. And one thing I love in, in Ephesians, some people say, well, in Ephesians, the first three chapters are the theological part and the next three are the practical part. But the practical part keeps coming back to the theological part in the gospel. In chapter 5, verse 2, it says that walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. So, is, is Christ has given himself to us in the most costly of ways. He, he came, as the hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Uh, Christ's love for his church is also a particular love. That's another theological point some of you may get, that you know he loved his church. He died for his church. And a husband's love for his wife is a particular, unique love. But then it's a matter of giving up your life for her. Paul isn't merely saying you should be willing to give up stuff for your wife. And some men will say, yeah, if we were in a situation where my wife fell into the subway and the train is coming, I would jump down there and push her out of the way and save her life. That's very unlikely to happen. What's more likely to happen is it's 2 a.m. and the baby's crying. And are you willing to sacrifice your sleep? To go see what's wrong or to bring the baby to your wife. Or you've worked hard all day and your wife needs you to help with something around the house. And you've kind of been looking forward to vegging in front of the TV or the computer. And your wife wants you to do some project. That's the kind of sacrifice. Not some heroic once in a lifetime event in which you die. But you know, giving up your golf game. Giving up the football game you wanted to watch today. And coming to a marriage seminar for example. Aren't VCRs wonderful that you can, DVRs, you can record it and watch them when you get home. I won't tell you who won. Um, but to sacrifice, to sacrifice your rights for her good, as Christ has done for you. He, being in very nature God, did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, being as a servant. And that's the calling that we husbands have. Uh, so many men, and men in Christian churches, men in churches like ours, I'm sad to say, don't understand the nature of their authority. They they get the big head and think, well, yeah, God's put me in charge. I must be better. And they, they use their authority in a selfish way. That's not how Christ used his authority. You think about in John chapter 13. Um, and there's a little detail in John 13. I didn't notice at first, but I think it's somewhat significant. John 13 is where the Lord washes his disciples' feet. But the story begins in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, 
got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. See, the, the story actually tells us what is in the mind of our Lord before he washed his disciples' feet. What's in his mind? How great he is. That he'd come from heaven. That he'd come from the Father. He's returning to heaven. He's glorious. He's unlike any other man. He's the greatest man. He's God the Son. He's, he's conscious of his great authority. So what does he do? Well, if he's like a lot of men, he would have said, I'm the greatest. Wash my feet. Guys, which one of you gets to wash my feet? Because I'm the greatest. But no, he used his authority. His authority, which surpasses our authority, obviously. And serves. And of course, the picture of him washing the feet of his disciples is a picture of him washing us by sacrificing himself and giving his life as a ransom for us. And so, for us as men, if you want to get headship, leadership in the family involves service. And the man who want the whole family to revolve around him. We're going to watch what I want to watch on TV. We're going to spend the money that I want to spend the money. And everything goes his way. He is a horrible distortion of what Christ is. Uh, I remember a fairly young Christian who was engaged. My wife and I were spending time with this engaged couple over 20 years ago. And I I was trying to explain to this young guy, because he was pretty excited about, hey, you know, you become a Christian and you're in charge of the family and that's all a good deal. And I was trying to explain, well, here's here's the way it is. Let's say that there's some chocolate pie. There's two slices left and you and your wife both love chocolate pie. What it it means to be the leader is you give your wife the big piece. And that guy was stunned. I mean, something as simple as that. But it's just like, oh, wow, that's... Astonishing. That's not even good. Um, so, to serve, what does that mean? It means financially that you don't spend money selfishly on the stuff you like and your toys just because you're in charge, but you spend ultimately to the glory of God, but sacrificially for the sake of your family and your wife. So often, uh, what your wife wants isn't even things for herself. She wants you to buy things for the kids. She wants you to buy things uh, for the house together. But you, you, you want to, you, you sacrifice some of your desires and, and for, for her sake, for what matters to her. In terms of helping around the home, there are many men who have little calculators in their head and they say, well, I leave early in the morning and I work all day and then I come home and I'm done working. When I get home, I should be able to rest. And my wife's just been at home. I don't know what she's been doing all day, but you know, it's her job to do all the house stuff. Uh, it's my right at the end of the day to have rest. Well, Christ didn't cling to what he knew his rights were. He he gave himself, and we should be doing more than our fair share. I remember as I was growing up, a, a great model for me was my grandfather, um, and I remember going over to my grandparents' house for a meal many, many times as I was growing up. And my grandfather would be working. We were living near Washington, D.C., in a suburb in northern Virginia. And he would have to fight traffic to go into work, going in early. He'd get back, still be in his work clothes, sit down to dinner. And my grandmother, by then, you know, she's had an empty nest for a while. She played bridge with her friends. And I don't think she had all that much going on. But when the dinner was over, my grandfather, this six-foot-two, six-foot-three, strapping Man, manly man. My grandmother would get up to do the dishes and say, you sit down. You've worked so hard preparing this wonderful meal for us. I'm going to do this. 
And every night he would get up. And there was my big old grandfather doing the dishes, even though he'd worked hard all day. How do you think that made my grandmother feel? She virtually worshipped the ground he walked on. It made her want to do all she could to serve him. Don't ask my wife how often I do the dishes. uh, I actually tried, and she said, I did it wrong. I said, all shucks. I guess you don't want me to do that anymore. It's not about equality. It's about giving yourself. Christ does not love you just as much as you love him. He loves you with an overwhelming love. And then in addition to being a a, a sacrificial love, an unconditional love, it's a purifying love. Verses 26 and 27. Here's where the how to change your wife part comes in. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, the way I picture this is I look back on my wedding day 31 plus years ago, And on that day, God gave me the greatest earthly gift I will have, which is my wife. Greatest gift is salvation, is Christ. But he entrusted Caroline to me. And one day, I'm going to have to give her back. Death will part us one day. But my job is to give her back better than I got her, as God helps me. That's what Christ does for the church. His commitment to the church is not merely to marry us, not merely to be joined to us, not merely to save us. But when you become a Christian, he begins the process of making you more like him, of sanctifying you. And so the job of a husband is to be deliberate in pursuing the spiritual growth of his wife. Christ wants a glorious church and a, a beautiful bride for himself. And so your love for your wife should make her more and more beautiful for Christ. How do you do that? Well, you pray with her. You read the word with her. You lead the family in worship. You, you teach her. You make sure she has time to have her own devotions. Maybe after dinner, one motive for doing the dishes is so she hasn't had time yet to read the word. And so you free her up to do that. You free her up so she can go to a ladies' Bible study. You're involved in the church and in ministry together. It's the washing of water with the word. It's protecting her from the pollution of the world, which gets more and more polluted. It's recognizing areas where she is weak and and having a strategy, not in a demeaning or insulting way, but in a loving, encouraging way to help her become stronger. It's encouraging her to develop the God-given potential she has to honor Christ, while her primary role is to be your helper. Uh, She may have gifts in other areas. She may have gifts of music that can bless the church, or gifts of administration, or teaching, and other things. And And I've seen some husbands in their selfishness, they'll say, no, I want my wife just to serve me. Well, God has given her as a gift to the church also, secondary to you. You're the priority. But to encourage her in those ministries. The woman in Proverbs 31 didn't just stay at home all the time. She was out helping the poor, for example. And I assume her husband encouraged that. So to encourage your wife to be a blessing to others and to help others and not to be greedy, keeping her only to yourself. You want her to be, you want to know what her gifts are. And to help her to use those gifts. Uh, you want to be careful in, in terms of how you lead the family. To be sensitive and not go against her conscience or in, in different matters. And then a really big one is part of being a spiritual leader is having the courage to make decisions that go against your wife's preferences. 
when you're doing it, not selfishly. It's not a matter of saying, well, I'm in charge, and so I get the big piece of pie, or we're going to go on vacation to the place I want to go, or we're going to spend the money I want. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that like Adam and Eve, (laughs) Adam failed, right? His wife took over headship and led the family in a disastrous direction. The same thing happens later in the book of Genesis where Abraham, right? Or is Abram at the time? And, and Sarah says, you know, we haven't been able to have any kids yet. Why don't you spend some time with my maid Hagar and see if you can have a kid with her? Bad idea, right? We're still suffering from that one too. And yet, and so there's a time, and, and actually in both cases it says, and the man listened to his wife in the Hebrew. He, he hearkened to his wife, listened into obedience. And so there's going to be a time when your wife may have a bad idea. There may be a time she wants to spend money that's going to put you so far into debt you shouldn't do it. It may be a time when she's attracted, you know, for the wrong reason to change churches or to relationships. And and you you may need to be the one to have the courage to be a spiritual head and to gently lead your wife away from what she desires. And, and, and what I found in counseling, I think right now I've had a case recently where the wife keeps doing bad things and she says, well, my husband lets me. I wish he'd stand up to me. I think a lot of Christian women are that way, is that somebody ought to stop me. <laughs> and you know, I'm not encouraging that kind of thinking on the women in terms of doing what you know is wrong, but there's a place to be strong. Now, you can't bar the door. If a woman is, you know, let's say she's going off with friends you don't think are such a good idea, and you can't chain her to the house. You can't physically restrain her, but you can exercise leadership and say, honey, this is what I believe is best. Here's why. I want to help you. I want us to you know, spend our time doing more profitable things. I can't stop you, but you need to know that if, if you go off and do this, you're going against what I'm trying to lead you to do. Many men don't have the guts to do that. Many men don't do a good job of standing up to their wives when they should. God holds you accountable to do that. Continuing in verses 28 to 30, he says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are members of his body. So he's, he's taking us to a new analogy. The first was the most glorious. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's, that's the gospel. That's plain. It's almost like, well, if you can't get that one, here's, here's, a little more base. I'm going to go back to creation. Love your wife as yourself. She's part of you. Only a madman beats himself up. Only a madman is hurting himself. You, you love your wife because you love yourself. She is you, part of you, because you are one. The world will say, unite because you love each other. The Bible says, you love her because you are united. That's a reality. You're in this covenant. You are one. He doesn't just say she's like a part of you. She is part of you. In the the picture in the garden where God took from the man part of his own person, his own body, and then fashioned the woman. And he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Paul is saying it's true in your marriage as well. Even though your wife isn't literally taken out of your body, she is as much a part of you as Eve was of Adam. And he's saying... No one hates his own flesh. You you should love her. And he's making an assumption here. He's saying, I know you love yourself. Even if, as the years have gone by, and you know, you've lost some hair, you've gained some weight, 
You're not the man you used to be, but you still love yourself because you're the only self you have, right? And so in spite of your imperfections, you love yourself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So in the same way, your wife isn't perfect. She's imperfect like the rest of you. It's imperfect. But because she is part of you, you love her. And then how do you do that? Well, you nourish her. Uh, even if you don't like your body, you still feed your body. Hopefully you do like the body God gave you, and even more so that you love your wife. But here I think we, we do want to go back to Christ a bit, is that Christ, because it says he nourishes and cherishes it as Christ also does the church. And you think of all that Christ has done in providing for the church. And you know, this language of nourishing is providing for, feeding, caring for in every area. That is what Christ has done for his church. In him we have redemption. He made known to us the mystery of his will. We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive. We're fellow heirs. We have confident access through him. He's given us leaders to direct us. And you know, Ephesians has been filled with all the great things God has done for us in Christ. Giving us a new nature. Giving us fellowship together. We are richly provided for, aren't we? As the bride of Christ. And in the same way... Provide for your wife uh, in, in different areas. One would be materially. I think it is significant when the curse is given, the woman is cursed in childbearing, which is going to be her normal realm in the home. It's going to be hard to bear children. I think both in the act of giving birth and in the 25 or 30 years that follow, there are going to be difficulties as well. Uh, for the man, it's he goes out and he has to make food by the sweat of his brow. There are going to be thorns and thistles. And so, He's the one that's going to be feeding that wife and those kids primarily. And, and so a man should aspire to be a good provider, to care for his wife, to do what it takes. Some men need to get more training so that they'll have skills that are more valuable, so they can do a better job of providing. Some men need to work harder. We need to prepare our sons especially to be able to provide for a family. It gets harder and harder to do in a culture where most people have to live on multiple incomes. It's also a matter of being generous with your wife. Uh, again, different wives are different ways. And I, I know some, I, I've counseled in cases where, you know, a wife is a spendaholic and she, her, her drug of choice is shopping, either at the mall or on eBay or something, and that can be a problem. But I think in Christian homes, many of our wives are afraid to spend money or they're reluctant to spend money. Um, I have to encourage my wife to spend money on herself sometimes. She's got socks you can read a book through. Um, I think she recently retired a blouse I remember her wearing in college. And so you know, my wife is someone that you have. I have to encourage her to buy things for herself. And I, I wanted to have a sense of, of, of us of me being generous towards her. I, I can't be generous to the point of getting us into debt we can't pay because that's sinful. But I want to be as generous as I am capable of being with her, that she can feel cared for and loved. Some men are very stingy with their wives. They're often not so stingy with themselves, and, and the wife senses that. So to be generous, to make her feel special, well, well cared for. Uh, I've actually had to learn. This will get into understanding your wife, kind of understand how my wife talks when we're in a shop. Like, she loves Brighton. She goes straight to whatever's on sale in Brighton. And she looks at something, and if she says, I don't want that, I believe her. If she says, I don't need that, 
<laughs> that means I want it. <laughs> but I don't want to ask for it because I don't want to be selfish. So you have to learn the language. Um, so you provide for her and you do what you can to be a good provider, but also emotionally uh, to be her best friend, the companionship. Um, some, you know, some men don't talk very much. We're going to talk about communication in the next couple of sessions, probably. But sadly, there are some married women who are lonely. Isn't that sad to think about? But it's true. There are married women who are lonely because their husbands don't talk much. I've, I've, I've counseled in cases where the husband is, well, I don't have anything to say. I talk to people all day long. I don't like it that much. And I come home and I just want to be quiet. Well, your wife got married. Maybe you got married because you wanted somebody to cook meals and share your bed, but she got married because she wanted a friend. And, and she came into this, and you know, she read these romance novels and all these things. Harvey talks about you know, all the Jane Austen books and movies and everything. And you know, She has these romantic ideals. Harvey points out the fact that these books always end with the wedding. So there are no sequels. If, uh, you know, Mr. Darcy brings his hunting party or something, and um, Sense and Sensibility, the sequel. Um, but the idea is the woman's dream, when looking ahead to this romance and the wedding, is I'm going to have a man who's devoted to me. And there's some that say, what do you mean? You, you drive a Honda minivan that's only two years old, and you know you, you have a credit card. I don't tell you how much to spend. We live in a nice house. When it's hot, you can turn on the air conditioning. You know, I, I give you everything. What else could you want? Well, she wants a friend. She wants a companion. She wants you to spend time with her and open your heart to her, meeting her spiritual needs. You should be the one taking initiative in prayer and in family devotions and in, in church involvement. And then meeting her sexual needs. Uh, again, subject that should come up later. But... Men and women are, are different in this area. And you know, what, what a woman is longing for is to feel special. It's actually when her emotional needs and she feels cared for and cherished and appreciated. That's when she feels like opening herself up to her husband. That's when she feels like being united to her husband. Um, you know, you've heard that foreplay begins early in the morning about how you talk to her as you're getting out of bed, not at 11 at night. So... Part of it, too, what women long for, women delight to be delighted in. They want to be special and exciting and, and delightful to their husbands. And the, the, men delight in sex and the act and the beauty of their wives. But for a wife, sometimes it's not fireworks. It's just a matter of knowing that she is the sole object of your attention and desire, but also that what you're expressing sexually is a reflection of your love and respect and delight in her as a person. You know, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this, that we as husbands, it's actually quite remarkable. It says, let a husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's the place your wife has authority. Your sexuality belongs to her. Part of that also, I think, is her right to have children. In the Old Testament, uh, among the rights of a wife in Exodus 21, uh, you, was, you had to have food, clothing, shelter, but also conjugal rights. And I think probably especially in that context then, the idea was that the wife or a woman, her meaning, her purpose, her, her yearning in life is to have children. And the husband owes that to his wife. 
Now, you work out together the timing and how many. I think that's your freedom. But if you get married, that's a right your wife has. Um, I've even seen cases where uh, a guy in seminary or something like that, and his wife is yearning and yearning and yearning for children. She sees her friends having kids, and she feels the clock ticking. And I would tell a man that your calling to meet your wife's need in this area is more important than your calling to get a diploma, and which may leave you in a less qualified to be a leader position than taking care of the needs of your wife. And then to cherish your wife. First uh, Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, that your prayers will not be hindered. This means you're supposed to understand her. You know, men will joke, well, you can't understand women. They're hard to understand. Uh, yeah, they're very different from you, but one of the biggest problems men have is they treat their wives as if it was just another guy, as if she was like you. They don't take the time to analyze. She is different. When it says she's a weaker vessel, it doesn't mean that she's inferior. I'll give you an analogy um, in our home. I have, in our home, different kinds of drinking vessels, okay? I have, when I went to India one time, I bought for my kid these metal cups that the kids there would drink out of, engraved with each kid's name. These things are tough. I could fling it against that wall and it would just knock some plaster off and it wouldn't damage the cup. They are strong vessels. Uh, I also have these big old beer steins out of which I drink Dr. Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper, or Cherry Diet Dr. Pepper. And these are also, they're kind of made to clank together during Oktoberfest or something, and so you can fill it with your Dr. Pepper and clank it, and it survives. We also have some Waterford Crystal that we got when we were traveling. And if you even sneeze, <laughs> they may break. You know, you can't put it in the dishwasher. You've got to wash it delicately by hand, and you got to be so careful. Now, they are weaker vessels. Yet one of those is worth a hundred of those metal cups and fifty of the glass steins. Well, in that sense, your wife is a weaker vessel. That what you could say to another man that wouldn't bother him, and yeah, you're just teasing back and forth, may hurt your wife and may cause her to crack or to break. And so you need to understand she's different from you. This is one place you have to go a little beyond the golden rule. So I just did to her what I wanted her to do to me, and well, it doesn't work that way. You need to do for her what she wants you to do, not what you would want done. Uh, again, to give you an analogy, like if, if my wife rubs my back, I want her with all the strength those little hands have to rub really hard, and that feels good to me as my back hurts. For her, it's gentle. If I were to do that to her, she'd scream out in pain. So you need to understand who she is and how you talk to her. One of the handouts in your packet should be uh, 50 questions to ask your wife. Good date material. Take your wife out. And you're just going through, some of them are personal, some of them are kind of silly. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream or something like that? Some wives have said, well, after 25 years, you ought to know the answer to all these questions. <laughs> Make him answer the questions rather than me. But understand, our wives have a tremendous need for communication. Um, I think they're wired that way. It, it's kind of like, you know, women have a hard time understanding how great a man's sexual need often is. And a man typically has a hard time understanding how much a wife just needs to talk and to be heard. And, and, and also, not just to be heard, but also for her husband to open himself up to her. Uh, and, and you can somehow understand that, especially when you have small kids. And here the wife has been, she's all day long. She's got a toddler and a baby and a five-year-old. And she's talking in short sentences and about 
Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever, you know. And, and, and then her husband comes home and she has been yearning all day for an adult conversation. On the other hand, he just wants to rest. Well, he has to be patient. He has to be gentle. Um, in conflict. Don't wait for her to come to you. You're supposed to be the leader. And then treat her with respect. Uh, some men, again, the, the, there's a lot of really bad chauvinism in Christian circles, I'm sad to say. And Some men think because they're in charge that means they're smarter or better. I've seen men treat their wives as if they were stupid. Have you ever seen that? Where a guy doesn't trust his wife to go to the grocery store, but has to be there and tell her what brand of soap to buy and buy this one, not that one, this can of beans. And it's demeaning. Back to Proverbs 31. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He respects her. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a spiritual equal. Don't micromanage her. Give her freedom in her realm. Be thankful she wants to operate in the realm of your home and, and with the kids and honor her for that. And then express appreciation to her. That's what the man in Proverbs 31 does as well. You know, her children bless her. Her, cho- her husband praises her, saying, "Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. Woman appears the Lord is to be praised." You know, you excel them all. Many men are really good at romance, kind of like that boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0. Many men are really good at romance during courtship, and it's kind of like once you've Got her, you kind of move on to the next conquest or something like that. Well, the deal of being married is to continue to court her, to continue to seek her. The most romantic year your wife has ever experienced should be this year. Not the year you got married or any year since then. Every year should be the best. Either tell her you love her. Um, If you mistreat her, Peter says... Your prayers will be hindered. It's going to affect your relationship with God. And, and one way I think of that is if you're supposed to be in this marriage representing Christ to your wife, for you to be a selfish ogre is such a horrible distortion, so grotesque in dishonoring Christ, whom you're supposed to image to her. No wonder your prayers would be hindered. Now, what do you do if your wife is hard to love? Well, that's a better opportunity to love in a Christ-like way, isn't it? Uh, remember how Christ has loved you, even when you were not. Uh, what do you do if you don't have loving feelings towards your wife? Well, again, you meditate upon Christ's love for you. And that even someone that you don't have passionate feelings about, you can love, you can care for, you can treat tenderly and gently. If you realize that you're both fellow sinners, realize that there's conflict and difficulty, she's hurting too, and have compassion on her as Christ has had compassion on you, how hard it must be to have a sense your husband doesn't love you like he used to. And to show mercy and compassion to her. Pray that God would give you a tender heart towards her. So, to summarize before our break, um, love your wife and lead your wife. Those who are single, want to get married, you men who want to get married. Marriage is not about getting someone to be your maid and your mistress. Marriage is growing up and being able to give yourself to another person sacrificially. And if you're not ready to do that, you're not ready to get married. And 
obviously with single women. This is a picture of the husband you're looking for. This is a picture of the man you're looking for. Not some Prince Charming who's good at dating, who can sweep you off your feet, but a man who will love you in a Christ-like way, a man who is in love with Christ and is growing in Christ, and you trust that that love will be reflected towards you. And then, just for us as men, um, it's kind of like with the women, is that you you can come to something like this and feel pretty guilty. We fall short. And I'm thankful for grace. I'm thankful for grace, again, that I've been accepted by God in Christ. we, we, the tendency of human nature is to go back to the law, isn't it? The tendency is to sit here and say that I am acceptable to God according to how good a husband I am. And right now I don't feel so good. And we have to continually remind ourselves of the gospel that no, I am acceptable to God because of Christ. And when God's law is put before me, it drives me back to the cross to realize that I'm so thankful that on the judgment day, I'm not going to be judged based upon how perfectly I did this. Or I'd be sunk. Also, for me, it brings me back to the gospel because I just marvel that I fall so far short of that and my wife reflects the love of Christ to me and still loves me anyway. And if you're married to a godly woman, you're going to see the gospel when you see how far short you fall and yet still she loves you, still she respects you, still she appreciates the efforts you make that fall short of perfection. But there's grace in marriage and appreciation. And, and I do appreciate I appreciate how many men are here. Sometimes you go to a conference on a Saturday and it's all women. But uh, the men who are here and you're willing to hear these things, and as we fill ourselves with the love of Christ, he will help us to reflect that love to our wives.